You're listening to Mysterious Mountains, a production of the West Virginia Humanities Council, where together we explore the imaginary landscape of West Virginia through genre fiction and folklore. More and more they're aware of the fact that a huge part of what mental illness is essentially your, the part of your brain and your ego that tells you the story about yourself has basically just gone haywire and it is telling you a completely deranged fiction about yourself. Welcome to a special episode of Mysterious Mountains that was author and poet William Brewer talking about his personal experiences and writing The Red Arrow, his novel that was released this year by Knopf Penguin Random House. The book follows in the footsteps of a writer in over his head with a new assignment, hopping the globe in search of answers. It's garnered rave reviews from the New York Times, San Francisco Chronicle, and more. We brought Brewer back to his native West Virginia for a live reading and a discussion of the Red Arrow. But first, a quick note about the recording. The discussion you're about to hear contains some adult language and themes. Listener discretion is advised. The views expressed are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the West Virginia Humanities Council. Both the novel and this recording contain references to mental health, depression, and psychiatric treatment. The Council is not a medical organization, and listeners are encouraged to seek professional treatment if experiencing mental health issues. If you haven't heard, as of July 2022, U.S. listeners can now call the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by just dialing 988 on your phone, where you'll be connected with trained counselors 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Help is out there. As you might have guessed already, this will be a one-off episode for our first season, wherein we'll detour briefly from Melville Davison Post and Uncle Abner. But don't worry. Our West Virginia Frontier Sherlock will be back for a big finale soon, a four-part season wrap-up with Abner's biggest case, The Mystery at Hill House. If you just finished listening to a previous episode, pluck your imagination out of 19th century Harrison County and float down to Charleston on the banks of the Kanawha River on a wet summer day in August 2022. There are shreds of mist over the water, lifted out of the current by the warm downpour that ended just an hour ago. You turn up Capitol Street, past the stately library with its colonnade, footsteps tapping along the red brick sidewalks, their ruddy color more vivid from the rain. Less than a block later, you're pulled into the warm glow from a set of tall windows, and the heavy door sighs as your feet carry you into Taylor Books. Inside, there always seems to be a low, welcoming murmur even during those rare times when there's hardly anyone there. Maybe it's the thrum of curiosity laid atop the low pulse of creaking, coffee-dark floorboards interrupted now and again by the exhalation of the espresso machine. But you didn't come for books today, at least not to browse them. You came to listen. As you turn left behind the cash register, there's a long white gallery filled with ceramics, paintings, photographs. On one blank wall hangs a sign, new exhibition coming soon. At the end of the hall are two tall chairs with a pair of men chatting comfortably, turned away from their microphone stands. 
and as you take your seat, they turn to you. Well, good evening. Thanks to everybody for coming out, and thanks to Taylor Books and Dan and the crew for having us. I'm Eric Wagner. I'm the executive director of the West Virginia Humanities Council. We are the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. And in that capacity, we give grants and we give direct programs throughout the state in history and archaeology and architecture and language studies, legal studies, and all the other uh, sorts of fields under the umbrella of the humanities. And tonight, we're doing something a little bit different than we have been in the history of the council, which is really exciting. We're hosting our first, as far as we can tell, we're hosting our first purely literary reading. And we're very happy to welcome Will Brewer, who is indeed from Montegalia County, <laughs> West Virginia, but hasn't been here for a while, and we're really happy to have him back. Will is a both a poet and a novelist, and is uh, has bounced around quite a bit, but from West Virginia, has lived and schooled in Pennsylvania, New York, and California, where he's been living now for several years. Uh, his book of poetry, I Know Your Kind, is available this evening, as is the novel that he will be reading from, and which we'll be discussing this evening, The Red Arrow, out from, we were trying to get this right, Penguin Random House. No so Knopf is the publisher, which is as with everything these days, is part of the larger conglomerate of Penguin Random House. Prepare to be assimilated. It's you all know, right yeah. here under one umbrella. So one fish eating another <laughs> fish endlessly, yeah. Uh, both the books are fantastic. They're available for purchase here this evening, and we're very excited. Please join me in welcoming Will Brewer. I'm not used to having a chair, which is really nice. You know, a lot of people, they lock their legs when they read, and then they pass out and stuff like it's a wedding, which I don't you know, ever want to do. I'm going to read just a brief section, probably even less than 10 minutes. The background you need to know, if you don't know anything about the book, is the main thrust of it is that the narrator is a writer who got himself in quite a bit of trouble where he um, convinced a publisher to give him a ton of money to write like a huge book about West Virginia, this sort of great West Virginia novel, and then proceeds to realize he has no business doing that and spends all the money and then is sort of panics because of it. So I'm going to read from a section where... He's freaking out about not being able to write this book. And so a couple things you need to know. One is he becomes very obsessed with the incredible real book called Dispatches by Michael Herr, which is about the Vietnam War. It was sold as sort of a memoir, but it turns out some of it he completely made up. So regardless, it's, it's an incredible piece of literary writing. So if you hear the mention of Her or Dispatches, I'm referring to Michael Her or his book Dispatches. And then you'll also hear a reference to The Mist. And The Mist is this in oppressive experience of depression that the narrator has. And this plays a sort of a larger part in the book. There's a mention of, a, of Ben, and Ben is his younger brother. This section takes place in Morgantown and is about a fictional event that sort of cobbles together a number of events that happen in and around the state, one of which will be familiar to people here. So yeah, this is it. It's from The Red Arrow, and, and it should be relatively brief. And thank you very, very much for coming here. I've never really read in West Virginia before, um, and I've been sort of doing this for a while now. So this is a real gift, and I, and I thank you for it. At first, I believed the book to be a gift, a kind of high-octane fuel that was filling up my mind, teaching me how to write the book I wanted to write. On every page, I found sentences that vibrated with the frequency I dreamed of channeling in my own. The more I studied it, the more certain I became in what I needed to do and how to do it. But then, of course, the opposite happened. When I sat down to write, I could feel within the first minutes, but even still in the days and weeks after, that any scene I wanted to write would never, never eclipse the genius of what her had done, not in a million years. The book that I thought was a gift was in fact a curse, classic doings of the mist. 
As I flipped through the heavily annotated pages at my writing desk, I learned that I'd made a taxonomy of all the writing I'd never be able to surpass. Even simple lines like, the rotor thud of a helicopter, the one sound I know that is both sharp and dull at the same time. I read that description and knew I could never describe my own experience hearing the helicopters because that is the only right way to describe how they sounded when they descended on us, my dad and Ben and me, during the Water Buffalo Riot. Water Buffalo was the colloquial name for the large freshwater distribution tanks brought in by the National Guard. During the Great Spill, they'd set them up across town at two points, the football stadium parking lot and the parking lot of the abandoned mall. On January 20th, the morning after the spill began and the power grid had failed. My dad brought Ben and me along because it was said on the radio that each person could fill two two-gallon jugs, and as far as he was concerned, we were persons. Overnight, the temperatures had plummeted to negative 40 Fahrenheit, a new record low for the state. And even with the morning sun coming up, temperatures climbed only 10 degrees to negative 30. The cold wasn't enough to keep us away. My dad dressed us in all our best winter gear, and we went. When we got to the football stadium parking lot, we saw the cold wasn't enough to keep anyone else away either. The place was full with a queue of people cordoned off by the interlocking metal gates used for ticket lines on game days. Armed soldiers were set up on the perimeter. Barrel fires were burning along the edges of the lines in hopes of keeping the crowds warm. The water buffaloes were at the far end of the lot, illuminated under spotlights. The air was so cold that its moisture content had frozen into a mist floating no more than eight feet off the ground. An icy cloud with the faintest purple hue from the licorice vapor held within the suspended crystals, growing with the rising breaths of all those waiting in line. The sun and sky concealed beyond, every color drained to a neutral pastel, except for the barrel fire's flames. I can't really say how long we waited there, shivering, smelling the licorice, spitting, the cold was unbearable. Every part of us hurt from exposure or violent shivering. At first, the line moved at a decent speed, but soon after we got there, it slowed, then stopped altogether. People grew restless. The ice cloud thickened until I couldn't see more than four or five bodies ahead. Reports started trickling back from the front. It had gotten too cold, people said. The National Guard was saying it was too dangerous for people to be outside. We'd passed into a threshold of almost instant frostbite. People started grumbling, shuffling, cursing, fuck this, fuck this, fuck this. They've run out of water. That was the next message. They've run out of water, and we're using the cold as an excuse to get us to disband. Finally, a guardsman got on a bullhorn and confirmed that it was too cold for people to be outside and that they were shutting down distribution until temperatures returned to safer levels where they could set up heated tents. Everyone must disband, said the voice we couldn't see. The crowd broke into madness so quickly, I couldn't process at first what was happening. I think my mind had slowed because of the cold. The bodies began to converge, falling forward, then back in a wake of down jackets and frosted breath. The gathering roar of the crowd like some demented train call. And it almost seemed like a joke, or some kind of play or performance, as I watched my dad join some other men to lift up one of the sections of fence barricade and launch it away from the cordoned area. The masses then spilling out and rushing toward the tanker, my dad grabbing me and my brother by the necks like cubs and pulling us toward it. Parked near one of the tanks was a box truck, and some men had climbed up and thrown open its hatch, and inside were a few pallets of bottled water. 
they started launching them into the crowd, and I can remember grabbing a single 16-ounce bottle of spring water that fell before me, stuffing it into my jacket like a baguette, though I never once tried to write about this, never even tried to say how soon after I'd lost track of my brother and my father and the flow of people or how in the disorienting static of the violet mist the thrashing bodies of the crowd blurred together in a single smudged gesture like a charcoal sketch blurring me away with it so that i was lost in a vibration of human energy so dynamic my legs were shaking and i started laughing because i knew i didn't exist none of this existed not the people or the cold or the water tanks and especially not the great ferocious thunking sound I started feeling in my chest descending down out of the sky in the form of a light beam, the spotlight of a helicopter, the silhouette of its underbelly faintly visible above like a whale swimming over, the song of its blades both sharp and dull at the same time. And then a voice warning about tear gas, whatever that was, I didn't know and it didn't matter because none of this existed including the canisters falling down out of the mist, spewing out mists of their own. And it was only when my dad's arm wrapped down around my torso and pulled me up against him, my feet half off the ground, that I came back, the touch of his body making my body real again. And he dragged me through the crowd, away from the riot center, and I could tell by the force of struggle in his breath blasting down against my head that in his other arm was my brother. And in that way, he carried us out of the riot, just as the gas clouds haunted toward us. I could see them from inside my father's truck where the three of us sat catching our breath as the heaters blasted our faces, my father making sure we put our noses and fingers right up against the air grates to fight off any frostbite. And at one point, he even put my brother's fingers in his mouth to warm them as the grates warmed, Ben at this moment also having another asthma attack, my father holding his inhaler in his free hand, Ben's back against my father's chest, my father telling him to breathe with the rhythm of his rising breast, the tear gas meanwhile moving ever closer. And finally, when Ben could breathe again, just in time, we pulled away. And right then I heard what sounded like a great big piece of paper getting torn in half. And my brother and I turned in our seats and watched out of the truck cab's back window as two bursts of cold, white, inhuman light screamed up into the sky then exploded and hung there like weird, dripping angels, their light briefly burning away the mist's shroud, illuminating everything. The bodies, the copter, the overturned barrel fires, the men with their guns, in slurred underworld serenity. Lights I wouldn't learn are called magnesium flares, illumination rounds, until all these years later while reading her. And while they were up there at their zenith, I heard nothing, nothing at all, even as all around us pure, insane noise kept unspooling from some invisible source. But it must have all been too much for my ears or mind to make sense of, because everything was offline. It was silent. There were lights like fireworks in the sky. My snow pants were wet at the crotch. We sped down the empty street for home. Thank you. <laughs> How was it reading sitting down? Do you have enough wind? Oh, Are you yeah. all right? You okay? The it's column the is best. good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so much nicer. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for that reading, man. We really yeah, appreciate you making you. the trip all the way from Oakland, California. He came out. Do you believe? Yeah. It? How about that? So nice you made to be home, though. Yeah. Good for you. Uh, you're an award-winning poet who wrote a novel, so we have to deal with that arrogance sure. at some point. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, but it's, it's, a, it's a serious question. Yeah. I was uh, interested to find out in conversation earlier this evening. You actually began with a desire to write prose and kind of detoured into poetry. So. 
what's that trajectory? How did that trajectory work? How do you go from wanting to write prose to poetry and then back now to fiction? When I was in college, I started trying to get into workshops very early and the fiction ones were all booked as like a freshman. I couldn't get in, but you could get into the poetry class. So I just took the poetry class and it turned out that I made sense to me because up until basically age 18 or 19, I spent all my time basically painting. And so I'd learned how to think in images. And most of what you do in poetry is, is speak through image. And so it kind of clicked right away and I just went with it and it worked out because really as a, at a young age, I had no business writing prose. I wasn't <laughs> sort of smart enough to, string together 250 pages of stuff. I could, I could barely write an email. So that's kind of how it happened. It seems strange now, but if you look at the careers of most people, it's actually very common that most people's first book was a book of poems. That was, that was seen as sort of a normal thing that you did at the start. And then you kind of worked your way into prose. And traditionally, you did that because you needed money. And that's not terribly different now either. But, uh, but it sounds more unique, really, in the scheme of things in our contemporary than it, than it was in the big scheme. Yeah. Making that good poetry money. Yeah. yeah the, you know, all the, yeah, there's a great shirt you can buy called Make Big Money Writing Poems. And then under it says Work From Home, which I think is great. Yeah. Which I think is great. Yeah. So did, did you grow up in, what would you call it, I guess a bookish household? Were you... Were you sort of surrounded by no I mean my parents are here so they can yell at me if I say this wrong but, no, but you know my, my mom was an English major so like we had a big shelf of books at the top of our stairwell and there was like a shelf of stuff that she clearly had from undergrad so there was like Frankenstein Nathaniel Hawthorne Moby Dick and that was crucial I read those when I was a teenager but there was no like pressure to read or anything like that and I, I'm one of four siblings so four kids so I'm definitely the one who sort of decided to become a reader. The The truth of it was that I, I was sort of an incredibly depressed young person. And one of the things I figured out was a great way to like fill my mind with something other than my mind was hmm. by reading. And I, so I started reading really aggressively around age 15. And it once I figured out that I could do it, that I like, it was almost like learning like to be a runner, getting a runner's high or something. Like I'd finish a book and I was like, okay, that makes me feel alive and like awake and once I started doing that I've never really turned back you know yeah yeah I don't, I don't want to give too much away about the book but it's it's interesting because the protagonist of the book the narrator begins as a painter and then mm -hmm. moves to writing but he's also like throughout the course of the book if this makes sense it, he's chasing after stuff you know yeah, he's, he's chasing sure. after projects and, and yeah. running away but also running towards and so that the trajectory back and forth about you know how you're getting some places mm -hmm. is really interesting to me i'm interested in hearing about you said you know you're thinking in images right but writing narrative prose there's a sort of kind of by definition there's a there's a narrative arc there's a kind of dealing of, of, with time mm -hmm. that goes on a, a much longer scale so turning from poetry to prose, I mean, was there a level on which the way in which you draft and write and think about poetry ran into some barriers or you had to rethink some things as you were working on the novel? What transmuted and what didn't, I guess, is the best way to ask yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the time I spent in poetry was a great gift because it taught me a lot about compression and it taught me how to do a lot in a small space in a way that felt kind of alive and dynamic, not just like you were sort of stuffing a bag full of material, you know? The book, I think, to a lot of people, it appears as a, as a nonlinear text, but I would argue it is ultimately, like, if you sort of laid the whole thing out as a timeline, it's a relatively linear book. But what it, I think poetry really taught me how to do is find links in stuff, you know, these sort of leaps of the mind or the imagination, and then to follow them and to follow them and trust that if you continue to do that, a sort of much more intelligent structure will reveal itself. And so like a lot of people think about 
contemporary or I mean any poetry is like you know something that's written in a meter and there's these rules you follow and that creates a music and then and then the music sort of complements the the content and people that write like really traditional poems like a sonnet or something with a strict iambic pentameter and stuff like the reason they do it is because it sets in place sort of guardrails that allows their imagination to go wherever it wants and in my opinion a novel functions in the same way which is that you have these sort of formal constraints in this case keeping someone paying attention like getting a big story in a small space and if you honor those things they'll kind of guide your imagination to do all the wild stuff you want it to do if that makes sense yeah yeah it does i, I want to press a little bit on that one point about making like taking the leap between connections yeah. is there um did that function differently writing prose than in poetry like drill down on that a little i mean bit the bigger the bigger difference is that like in a in a little poem like if you be like a poem by John Keats, like one minute he's like imagining himself as a planet and then 10 lines later he's ending the poem and it's him and his lover like spooning essentially for the till time immemorial. So novel, you just extend that way longer. So you just follow and follow and follow. I, I teach a lot and like part of my teaching is teaching about um, meditation as a practice and part of the reason I do that is prose writing is really like a confrontation with your consciousness and anyone who like goes on a long walk or like is grocery shopping, if you were to record what you were thinking about when you walked in the grocery store and then what you were thinking about when you walked out, it is inconceivable how you got there. You would, <laughs> right? you would, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. And yet your experience of it is one of the most normal parts of being a person. And when you actually think about narrative, narrative is that, right? You're essentially just implanting your consciousness in someone else's and getting them to feel normal about it. And so as a writer, like my thing is I follow consciousness way out. I let it go way, way far out. And I mean, the book talks about psychedelics and that's sort of a part of that as well. But learning to trust actually that if, you're, if you get your sort of standard ego brain, like the ego brain that's like, okay, we gotta get tomatoes and bread and butter and stuff. And instead you trust the part of the mind that wanders it'll actually make many more unique, valuable connections over that time than you could have ever anticipated sort of with your upstairs brain. Uh, and it's just really hard for people to sit with that and trust that. And part of it is because you waste a lot of time in the middle. Like as a writer, I write a lot of stuff that's not good, but I just throw it all away and no one ever sees it. And then what they see is this nice little package, you know, at the end, yeah. Reading the novel, that makes a lot of sense too because the protagonist, the moments where he, he kind of makes a connection or something clicks mm. are not the moments where he's really you know, attuned to what is around him in the day-to-day. -day. It's the yeah. moments where things, he's sort of alone or he's in a, a very, very confused yeah. state or he's betwixt and between things and he has to let go of one thing to, mm -hmm. to get the next. So is it in those, I guess, those kind of like liminal, rootless spaces where the connection occurs? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that even sort of neuroscience and basic psychology has even proved this out. You know, like if you think about certain moments in your life where something like occurred to you, like you were in a relationship and it didn't work out, it's rarely when you're having like a breakup that you understand why that relationship didn't work. It's often like four months later when you're mowing your friend's lawn or something that it occurs to you like, I should have done that. That would have helped, right? Partly because when you take again this sort of what we might call the ego out of the picture and pull it away that your brain is allowing certain pathways to communicate. The job of the ego is to keep you from feeling pain, to keep you from feeling confused, and to keep you from essentially walking into traffic. So like, <laughs> you know, it doesn't want to think about this stuff that's hard or complicated, but when you find a space that pulls that offline, this other stuff sort of reveals itself. And so a lot of like, especially first person fiction, 
you're experiencing someone essentially walking their mind down a path, not knowing what they're going to find. And it's through that that sudden connections get made. And then, you know, they think they're sort of telling one story. And in the process, they learn the sort of endings or the beginnings of many other stories. Yeah. It's not, I'm, I don't, it's not really the question about like how much of this is true to your experience mm -hmm. because some things are. I mean, yeah. you talked about beginning in painting and then yeah. going to switching genres and so forth. But I would imagine there's a, a comes a point in the writing where you take your lived experience and then you kind of, you let go of that or you extrapolate that into something that may not have actually occurred, but you envision various sorts of possible futures that might have occurred. Is that? Yeah. I mean, I always it? take, I always take like the basic stuff and then I just lie the hell out of it. You know, I just like burn it so far away. And, and that's what most people do. I mean, honestly, if you, like I've read enough biographies of like writers and stuff, if you look at it, it's like, it's this one thing that happened and it caused them to create this much larger thing. And so there's parts of this that are completely from my life, you know, 100%, certain material, or not 100%, but like I, I dug into that really specifically. So like the material regarding psychedelics, for example, is from my life. But, you know, a lot of the book, if you if you like gave it to a fact checker, they would say that instead it was a memoir, they would be like, this guy's full of shit, he's a complete liar. <laughs> and it was fun when we were doing it because the fact checker kept thinking all this stuff I made up was real. Like they thought the whole spill thing I'd made was real. And they're like, yeah, I can't find anything about this on Wikipedia. Like you're going to need to show me the news clippings. And stuff. I was like, well, I can't do that because it's not real, which made me feel like I did my job like as a, you know, you as a fiction writer. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, there's very little, but between professional writer and paid liar, there's very little, very little. distinction. Yeah, right? it's yeah, a professional yeah. categorization. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's that's funny. I since we're talking about psychedelics, then let's leap ahead a little yeah. bit. This, you know, as we're talking about it, it doesn't sound this way, but it's it's a really funny book. I mean, which I don't know. I, if, think so. I yeah. don't know if novels are allowed to be nowadays very much. I mean, people want to be very. It'd be serious. a lot better if more were funny. I 100 yeah. percent agree. Like when you yes. read classics and stuff, they're always hilarious. Like mo <laughs> a large chunk of them are is that they're they're humorous, and so. I think it's funny. I, you know, <laughs> I know that's like you're not supposed to say that you think you're funny, but I think it's got a lot of funny stuff in it. You know, well, yeah. there's a lot of that too, and it's you know, when I've had a couple of people ask me, you know, in, in preparation for this evening, what's the book about? And you can say, well, it's about a guy who is hired to write a book and he can't, and he goes to Italy, and that kind of gets it. Mm -hmm. But it's, that's like one thread that runs through the book yeah. to me anyway. It's about perception. It's about mm -hmm. questions about perception. How do we see the world? How do we know what is true or what we think is true? What happens to us when what we thought was true kind of runs up against something that directly contravenes that or, mm -hmm. or throws into doubt everything that we have. And in the end, again, not to give too much away, but the narrator engages in this sort of psychedelic sort of micro experience mm -hmm. that opens things up. Would you talk a little bit about that? What's, I mean, to this question of perception and about how we can have faith that what we know is reliable. That seems to be a pretty deep part of the book. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a huge part of the book. I mean, to talk about the psychedelic component is to talk prior to that, which is the force of depression and how mental illness functions in the book. And mental illness has been sort of misperceived. I mean, not, not to pun there, but people have thought of it as sort of a, like a curse of the soul or something like that, or an imbalance of the mind or something. But more and more, they're aware of the fact that a huge part of what mental illnesses is essentially your, the part of your brain and your ego that tells you the story about yourself has basically just gone haywire. And it is telling you a completely deranged fiction about yourself. Depression is telling you that you're worthless or that life isn't worth anything and that you know there's no point being here, stuff like that. And it can, totally controls how you see reality. And now there have been these sort of breakthroughs in the world of psychedelics, treating people with mental health. And psychedelics saved my life, psychedelic therapy, you know, I didn't know about it a couple of years ago, and then I did it, and I mean, it, it was 
It was like the equivalent of having open heart surgery or something on your mind. And I can speak more about what that is in specifics if people are curious, but I know it sounds a little hippy-dippy. The central component of it that makes it so useful, and anyone who's ever done a psychedelic knows this, is that it immediately shows you that the way you perceive reality is, is a complete fiction, that you're only ever taking in sort of one version of it, and often depending on your mood. And even like if you haven't had anything to eat, and you're just like hangry, as they call it, like that's a best perception of reality. Suddenly everyone's annoying and everything's too loud and traffic <laughs> is too long, right? Like, but that's, that happens on a vast scale when you deal with mental health problems. And psychedelics immediately shut all that down. And they show you that, you know, the world is much vaster and much more complicated, but it's sometimes more simple than you take it to be. But more especially, it shows you that the way you relate to reality is a complete fiction. It's not true. The biggest way it does that is it shows you that you, yourself, isn't really real. And that sounds sort of strange, but anyone who's ever read like any Buddhist text or spent any time around a person who's meditated for like 10,000 hours or something like that, they'll tell you that that's the central lesson of any of those practices, is that this story you tell you about yourself, it's just a story, that you're not kind of really there. Uh, and when that perception gets pulled away, the world becomes a much different thing, a much more manageable thing. Uh, so the book deals with that idea and then perception sort of in a number of different spaces. Yeah. Really and once that happens, the narrator is a lot more grounded, which I, that was the really, yeah. that was the thing that was really surprising to me, both as a reader and as, let me speak like devil's advocate for the, yeah. you know, anybody who might be really terrified by this idea of endless relativism. Of, yeah. Well, how yeah. do I know? Like if how I don't have I any grounding, you know, yeah. if, if I'm not me, if myself, if my identity doesn't cohere, was to say the struts aren't kicked away from everything. So what, what would one say in response to that? Maybe yeah, like the yeah. idea of endless yeah, relativity. A, a lot of people get nervous about this idea of, okay, you take a mushroom and you have this huge experience where sometimes, you know, you're sent to an alternate universe or like something. I mean, I encountered a gigantic snake with a day of the dead skull on its head that ate me alive. Like that sounds strange to people. And they're like, how are you just going to turn around and, and live a normal life after that? The hard part to understand, but it, it's crucial, is that you always come back from the experience. And there's a lot of sort of, there's a lot of lies that were told during the war on drugs and, and during the Vietnam War to make these chemicals illegal, to make them go away. When in reality, they were being studied, like I teach at Stanford, and most of the people that were getting PhDs in psychedelic studies at the time were all at Stanford. They were really normal, straight-laced people. Most of them went to Harvard or Yale or whatever, and then they went and got a PhD. And what, what they found is these things are incredibly healthy. They're not, or not healthy, but they're not dangerous. It's like more dangerous to take a Tylenol, basically, than to take a psychedelic. But in the process of the experience, you do lose your mind. And like, that's the point. That's sort of the goal. But what happens is your mind comes back. And when you come back, you're way more grounded because you realize after the experience how much stuff you let impact your mind and how much you have let kind of lizard brain stuff control your actions. So like a simple example would be people see someone and they, that person's driving a really nice car and they want to be that person that has the really nice car, you know. But what psychedelics will show you right away is like that is a material object. That material object doesn't guarantee that that individual is happy. Right. Whereas you know what it's like to be alive after that experience and you know what it's like to walk down the street and look at a tree, look at the river, be out in the rain and like what a gift that is. And so it takes a great deal of distraction and it just tells you how to edit it all away. And the simple way to think about it, I tell a lot of people this, is that you already know what this feels like 
Just remember what it was like when you were like four years old and someone told you to go outside. You never said, well, what do I do outside, right? You just went outside and then the world was there and you knew how to be in it. And it's that simple sort of state of being that it returns you to. And it's, and it's a game changer. It really is. Yeah. It's one of the pleasures of reading the book, really, that the action, mm-hmm. like the, the surface level action kind of mirrors that peripatetic, mm-hmm. you know, constantly here and there in Brooklyn and, and California and Italy. And, and there is a goal. There's a destination, again, not to give anything away, but there's a destination in mind when he goes to Italy. But what he finds is not anything like, of course, what he yeah. thought would find. And you, you, you were on the way kind of all along. It's a real kitchen sink book and I mean that in the most <laughs> yeah, like, it is. Love, yeah. kind of one of the uh, one of the interesting things about it is just how much stuff there is in it there are references to literature and journalism and music you know of the real world mm-hmm. then there's all of it that is kind of filtered through the the narrator's perception was it a difficult book to sort of map out to plot out in that way no I don't plot anything out no no, no. and again this is where like having a meditation practice is really useful is because I it trains you essentially to kind of witness where your mind is going and to just trust that if you follow it, it will make the links you need it to make. And so I don't map anything out until about three-fourths of the way through, I usually know how the last quarter is going to go. Because by that point, I sort of understand the world that I've built. But up until that point, when I start, I just sort of go. And what I do is I write if I write a 250-page book, I probably wrote 500 pages of stuff, but I write really poorly, and I write really, really fast. So I just, like, vomit tons of stuff out. And I tell people, like, the, it's, it's the equivalent of, you know, having, because I grew up doing visual art, it's just a sketchbook. It's the equivalent of, like, you sketch dozens of sketches before you paint a painting, and it's the same thing. It's like, I just sketch a ton with language, and then by the time I'm done, I kind of know what I've got, and then I clean it up and move it around and polish it. Uh, but I'm a huge proponent of like trusting that your imagination is way smarter than you are and is like five steps ahead of you. And so it's best to just like get out of the way and follow it. When I was teaching, like even freshman writing or, or yeah. the MFA program, I, we used to say embrace the crap. Just embrace exactly. it. Exactly. You yeah. can't be scared of it. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because we, we kind of only do this with writing. Like you, you don't tell people when they're drawing. You're like, you know, you only get to make one line at a time. And when you make it, you can't take it back. But when people try to write, they truly try to write first sentence and the second sentence. And that's not how anything works. Like nothing really works that way. Yeah. Well, we, um, we want to make sure we give time for some uh, Q&A. But what comes next? Are we going to go to nonfiction? Or what's the, uh, what comes? Are going to hit the no, tri- yeah, trifecta? I, mean, I, will, I definitely want to do nonfiction at some point. You know, um, I'm fi- I've finished another novel. but So I showed it. To, my wife's my first reader. And then I have a friend who's my second reader. And so they're reading it right now. But I think I'm, I wrote like another part that maybe is going to add on to it or is going to be a companion book. So I might just finish that one too. But another novel right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I, great luck to you, man. It's Thank really, you it's so much. It's a hell of a book and we really, so we're very appreciative of you coming out. Let's open it up to Q&A. What would you like to know? What would you like to ask? West Virginia authors. Have you read any and any influence you? Mary Lee Settles? that before your time? Yeah, before my... I've never read Mary Lee Settles, but... Um, I, I read a bunch when I was in grad school of Jane Ann Phillips, who grew up in Buchanan, you know, and actually know her son. I had this like really weird moment in a bar where I was talking to him and he was like, oh yeah, my mom's from West Virginia. And I was like, oh cool, Soren, who's your mom? And he goes, Jane Ann Phillips. And I looked at him, I was like, what the fuck, Soren? <laughs> <laughs> and she was right there too. And I was like, You're, that's, and yeah, so that was really strange. Um, <laughs> Scott McClanahan, I think is wild. I think he's incredible. Uh, those are two that I, I really admire. Yeah, right at the top, yeah. Um, the part that you did read today, um, 
Is that your favorite part of the book or what exactly made you want to read that? I, I read that part because when I'm doing a reading, it's really easy to read it because it's like this sort of shot down the pipe part. Uh, and it was a, it was a really fun part to write. Like once I kind of, I, I'd originally st- tried to write a different novel that took place like over the entire, like a week during a disaster. So I kind of had that world in my brain when I started this book. And so I was able to write that sort of like 50 page chunk really quickly. So I know it, I feel like it's tattooed in my brain much more sort of naturally compared to other parts of the book. Whereas where if I had to go and read them, I would have to like, the other thing in fiction, which I'm not used to compared to poetry is like if another character talks, like, are you supposed to pretend to sound like, you know, like, I don't want to do that. I'm not doing a radio show. So like, you know, uh, so I avoid stuff like that. And so it's basically like all action. And I feel like people can see it in their minds more easily than if I'm reading kind of like a conversation where people are like by the river saying like, why didn't you call, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. isn't that what we're all asking? Why yeah. Didn't you call? Yeah. You uh, respond to my text. My, title my next book. Why didn't you call? <laughs> So as far as you um, said, the mist like that's what you called. Yeah. That, did you make that up for the book, or is that something you called it before? The book? No. Yeah. So that was a that was a creation for the book. Um, and you know, it's not even a terribly like original idea to describe one's sort of bad mental health as a as a fog or as a mist. I mean, there's like a there's a pharmaceutical commercial that I see when I'm watching Warriors games all the time. That's like the opening of it is my depression makes me feel like I'm living in a fog. So like, you know, it's not like I didn't crack anything new there, but what I wanted was I'd read it, you know, I was, like I said, I was a depressed person for much of my life. And a lot of times the encounters with depression that I found in sort of literary fiction was they would treat it sort of in the abstract. Like it was this thing that was causing the character to do things, but the character rarely ever kind of like engaged with it as a force in their life. And that's, that's not how it was for me. I mean, for me, it was like this awful thing that was, I sometimes would describe it to people as like having a dog that was always walking beside you and you didn't want it there. And when you would start to have a good time, the dog would start biting your leg and like making you feel pain and want pull you out of that situation. So I wanted to make it like a physical force, essentially for a reader. I wanted it to interrupt moments. And as I've told people before, you know, like I saw some pretty wild stuff when I was on mushrooms, but like nothing has been more terrifying in my life than the, when I was at my worst. And like my wife was right next to me, talking to me, trying to just calm me down. And I couldn't hear a word she said. And it was just because this thing was interrupting us. And it was this thing that my mind had gone wrong. And so I chose to sort of put that in the book. But at first I didn't know that's what I was doing. Like the narrator just said that. And so I sort of followed it. And then I realized that that's kind of what was happening. And then as it got into the book, it kind of took on a life of its own. And then this stuff with the spill builds out of it and, and things like that. Were you here for the water crisis? I was in Morgantown when it happened. I was, I remember hearing about it cause I was, it was so cold and I was my basement at my parents' house has a sliding glass door where there's like a wood pile right next to it. And I think I was waiting to watch like a penguins game or something. And it was like showed on the news and I was like, this is, this is strange. You know, this is really strange, but my, my thing with the crisis was to sort of combine a number of events in West Virginia. I mean, there's, you look up water crises in West Virginia, and it's like, you know, the longest Wikipedia page you've found. And so there's all these disasters. There was like a one that happened in 1996 on north of Morgantown called the Ashland oil spill that hit, really hit Pittsburgh more because the Monongahela flows north. Um, but I was also curious about uh, like riots. And one of the things that I saw a lot of growing up in Morgantown were riots. And they were almost always connected with sporting events. 
which is weird. It sounds like no one else gets that. But like as a kid, when a big game would happen, win or lose, there would be a riot. And I remember one time they beat, I think it was Miami. They were still in the Big East. It was like a big game and they beat Miami and the students all flooded the field. And immediately cops sort of descended out of nowhere and threw tons and tons of tear gas on them. And so we were still in the stands and the tear gas was just like floating all over people. And it's sad because for starters, if you go to the McDonald's right next to the football stadium, all along the walls of the McDonald's are pictures of when students would rush the field and pull the goalposts down. And so it was this thing that if you're a lay person, you're taught to do, and yet they would punish you for it. But there was this other thing where there was clearly this like pent up energy, a kind of anger, a kind of frustration. And I would notice it time and time again, like people would set dumpsters on fire and roll them down the streets. They would flip cars. So I was really curious about this collision between these sort of large scale events that are outside of your control and then events that invite people to sort of make it known that they are not very happy with the way things are going at that moment. Even when you win, you're trying to say something. Uh, and so I sort of threw those together as well as a number of other things. And like the thing about this, I'll never forget down here was the licorice smell. And I was at that Fife bar down the street last night. I had a beer before I went to bed and there were three guys sitting down the bar for me. And sure enough, and I eavesdrop all the time because I steal people's stuff. No, I don't steal, but I like, I, I pay attention to how people talk and they clearly, I figured out that they were three professional chemists. They were young men, they were chemists. And this dude said, I was like, his sentence was, I was just out there last week and that spot smelled so bad of licorice. I tell you, even I had my suit on and I could still smell it, you know? And it's like, it, that stuff's around, it haunts. And like, there's a, there's a theory in fiction, this guy named James Wood, who's a critic, he's incredible. And he says about detail in fiction that like the most important details are the one that demand your attention, right? No matter how small. And like, I heard that licorice thing and I was like, that's weird. That's very weird that this really sinister thing is happening and it smells like candy. That's weird, yeah. Yeah, you talk, we talked about West Virginia authors. Do you have any literary uh, influences in general? I mean, Herman Melville, like Moby Dick changed my life. When I read that book, I, you know, I was a not very well educated, like 16 year old. And I picked up this book that should be like a very dense, complicated text. And it was, it, it was exhilarating. It was just like lightning bolts in the brain. And that started big things for me. Um, Virginia Woolf is huge. I love the British novelist Kazuo Ishiguro. I think, I think he's a legend, a genius. Don DeLillo was, was huge. He, he has a novel, White Noise, that to me was really life-changing when I read that. It's set in a college town, and there's this environmental disaster that happens. And when I read that, I was like, that's, I recognize that very, very acutely. So those are all, yeah, big influences for sure, yeah. The Airborne Toxic Event. The bear, Airborne Toxic Event, yeah. In DeLillo's novel. If you're yeah. kind of the kind of person who finds that funny... The Red Arrow. Yeah, That's yeah. the one for you. It's yeah, yeah. and they're, apparently that you know they're making a movie of it apparently right no, now in really? Ohio. Yeah, and apparently it's like all this stuff's going wrong with it, which feels very delirious. <laughs> so, uh, but it'll be apparently it's going to be out on Netflix, and it's got like Adam Driver. I mean, it's going to be like a, I don't know how they're going to do it because like it's one of these books where nothing happens, but a th thousand things happen. Yeah, like a, a large portion of the book is just people walking around grocery stores talking, but uh, which I spent a lot of time at Kroger, you know, as a kid, like a ton of time at Kroger, which is weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, where's the bulk of our day spent? It's at the gas station. Yeah. It's at work. It's at the yeah. Grocery my store. my friend lived right next to Towers, like the dorms at WVU and then the Kroger was right there. And so if you wanted people to buy you beer, you just 
stood outside of the Kroger. You know? <laughs> so you'd stand out and you'd be like, yo, yo. And like, we thought they were adults, but they were 19 year olds, right? Like, you know, like they were looking for someone to buy them beer. Yeah. So, yeah. It's like that experience again. And my wife is, is one of these people too. There are a lot. We, like, if you walk in and they've rearranged Aldi or Walmart, you're like, no, no. This isn't no, a, this isn't no, a, this isn't no. a spoiler, but that's the climax. That's the final scene of, that's the final scene of White Noise is, is that he says, like, one day they changed where the store was and everyone's walking around the store and it's as if they'd burn the church down. Yeah, they were like, everyone's upset. And it's an, and I, when I saw that, I was like, I know that. Like, I know that so well. Yeah. And the familiar gets kicked out from under yes. you. Know? Well, I mean, that's when, it, you know, you said about depression, one of the most insidious things about it is just, is how isolating it exactly. is. Exactly. I mean, you you're the only, you feel like everything is right here. You know, it's, yeah, and like that, that point leads to the thing about like an, a huge event, like a toxic event or a riot from a sporting event is that, there's, I don't know anyone in America that doesn't feel like they've lost some degree of kind of community, you know, meeting with people of like minds and sort of just being together. And those events like the riots or being in a disaster or like being in like, I, I was in New York for like Sandy and stuff like that. Like one of the strange parts about those experiences is that even when it's terrifying, you don't feel terribly alone in them. You for a second feel part of this mass and that mass can, the crowd can alleviate certain symptoms in a way. Uh, it can at once erase you, and then suddenly you come back into them. Uh, and that paradox, I was always been—I've always been very interested in. Yeah. Well, Will, thanks for a hell of a reading and a great conversation. Yeah. Thanks to thank Taylor you Books all very, very much. And all our yeah. friends here, Dan. Thanks a lot for for giving the space to make this happen. And thank you all for coming out. Please come up and say hi to Will. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this experience with author William Brewer. The event was recorded live with an in-person audience at Taylor Books in Charleston, West Virginia, on August 10th, 2022. Special thanks to William Brewer for joining us, Emily Reardon and Penguin Random House for helping us arrange the event, and Dan Carlisle at Taylor Books. The Red Arrow is available wherever books are sold. For more episodes of Mysterious Mountains, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit wvhumanities.org for links to our podcast page and more content. You can also follow the West Virginia Humanities Council on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The West Virginia Humanities Council is the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The council is an independent, nonpartisan nonprofit supported by the NEH, the state of West Virginia, contributions from the private sector, and people like you. Its statewide mission is to support a vigorous educational program in the humanities across West Virginia. This audio production of Mysterious Mountains is copyright 2021 by the West Virginia Humanities Council. Our theme song is Appalachian Impressions Movement 2, A Train Through Snowy Thurmond by Matthew Jackford, used with permission. Music